When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. All right, let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into this. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people. I want to thank you for your word that guides us. It's a lamp to our feet. I pray that you would impress upon us that which your spirit would desire to impress upon us, that we would see your heart most of all, and that we would be encouraged to walk in your ways. I pray that you would help us to discern your word this evening and, and to go on thinking about it uh, into discussion with friends and family. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I'm going to give you today uh, a little bit of uh, background to this text that we're studying today, a little bit of our story as a church, so you know why this matters, especially to us, because in this year, we're looking at the book of Galatians, and our theme is set apart, and the, the basic premise of what we're trying to do is we're looking into the book of Galatians at the way that that church was encouraged by Paul to apply the gospel to issues in their culture and in their church life that were difficult. And so we're asking the question of how do, we, how do we do that this year, especially in light of a year like last year where so many things seem to bubble up to the surface. Um, and, and we're asking, what does that mean for, for us? And some of that is applicable to anybody everywhere, but some of it's a little bit more applicable here in this church because we are asking God what we should do. So I'm going to give you a little background on this text, a little bit of our story, and then three important points about remembering the poor. But uh, I was especially, I began thinking about this, this topic when Michaela and I were watching The Two Popes recently. And I don't know if any of you have watched that on Netflix, but it's, uh, it's basically a movie. It's based on actual events where it chronicles the surprising abdication of the papacy by Pope, Pope Benedict. And it's this, um, it's, you know, it's kind of this strange event that happened, something that's only happened one other time in history, and his his convincing of who we now know as Pope Francis to become a cardinal or stay a cardinal, actually, so that he could potentially take over as head of the Catholic Church. And the film invites you to think about a lot of things. Um, for me, when I watched it, I thought about stuff like you know, what it, how in the Protestant Church or in churches more similar to ours, would we, you know, how should we think about our traditions, our doctrines? How should we think about you know, the ways that people are thinking now and current events, and how should we deal with that? It invites you to think about those things. And, you know, I, I don't think that the film, to me, cleared anything up specifically, but it did its job, and in, in then it got me thinking about these issues. And one of the things it invited me to think about was the poor. Because Pope Francis, what he was known for as a cardinal was that he was connected to the poor. He didn't have distance. He, he knew people who were impoverished. And, and when he became pope, that was something that he held on to. He, he wanted to hold on to connection uh, to the poor. And so the previous pope had a, a certain distance, uh, institutional distance. His doctrinal beliefs didn't seem to connect him to the poor. And that was difficult for him because much of the world is poor. 
And so therefore, much of the Catholic Church is poor. And the previous pope, Pope Benedict, was distanced from many of his people. And they, they, weren't, they didn't connect with him. Uh, they didn't appreciate him. I find in our scripture this evening uh, some very interesting stuff in this regard. And I, if I could summarize the situation for us here, I'll try to do it quick. Paul is recounting his affirmation as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he does this to impress upon the Galatian people that they should follow his lead in opposing um, these beliefs that would cause them to drift from the gospel. There were leaders who were trying to get them to be circumcised. And we've been reading about that in Galatians 1 and 2, and they wanted them to observe Jewish laws and festivals that were, at their best, pointing to Jesus and then were fulfilled by Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, don't go back to those things that were pointing to Jesus because Jesus has come. And to impress upon these people of Galatia that they should indeed not listen to these other leaders, he's recounting that he went to Jerusalem where he met with influential people, people who he said seemed to be the pillars of the church, people like James, who we've said is a, a relative of Jesus himself, um, and then John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, and, and Peter, or Cephas, his most well-known disciple who Jesus had said would be his instrument in building the church through his faith. And Paul had gone to these people, and he impresses upon the Galatian people that these pillars of the church, these important people, had not asked any of the Gentile people to be circumcised. In fact, Paul had a man named Titus with him who wasn't circumcised, and they didn't ask anything more of him at all. And they affirmed everything he said about the gospel, and they only asked him to do one thing. They only impressed one thing upon him after that whole meeting and that was to be sure to remember the poor. And Paul adds, the very thing I was eager to do. And so I imagine this scene, and I think of the, uh, the old photos or you know, the old artwork, actually, I see of the old church councils. And I think of a moment like this that we see as a pivotal moment in the history of the church where Peter and John and James are there, and they're talking over one of the big doctrinal issues of the day, the, the, big, the biggest one, can the Gentile people, people who aren't Jewish, be included in the church? And if they can, what are we going to ask of them? Are we going to ask them to be circumcised? And they're making this huge decision. And after that decision is made, they say, there's one caveat, one big thing. Make sure you do this. And it is remember the poor. So this should illustrate to us, I believe, that the beliefs of the church should never be divorced from the social work of the church. And when I say social work, I'm aware that, that for some of us, that's like, like what, do, what, what do you mean by that? You know, and what, is that, what does that mean? I, there's a lot of steam out there. There's a lot of frustration about social justice. Like, what? What do you mean by, by social work? And, and I'm going to just stick with, like, the words. You know, social. Like, that's your society, your community. And work. <laughs> just things you do in your society, in your community. This moment illustrates that the beliefs of the church must be wedded with action toward people in our community, especially even, you could say, 
mostly those who are poor. Now, not many of you were around when I was planting one of the two churches that now is Mission Church, but there was a little group of us that planted a church called Midtown, and we merged another church called Epicenter together and became Mission Church. And one of the things we talked about in, in my circles during the plant process at length when we were getting started was that we needed to wed two very important things that are often divorced or often separated. And, and here's how I came to conclude we needed to do that. Um, I grew up poor. I've, I've mentioned this to many of you, and, and you've heard me talk about it here, but there's a mobile home park on Pima and Columbus called the Shady Haven. If you want to see where I grew up, drive through it. You can do that. And we went to large, affluent churches, my family and I. It was a strange situation, a strange combination where we went to large, affluent churches, and then we went home to our, our single-wide mobile home, and we had two guys who would drink and get in huge brawls right outside of our window at night. And I sensed in this situation a major disconnect, right, between my world that I lived in and the church world. I and my family, we always went into that church world, but the church world folks rarely, if ever, came into our world. And there were several reasons for that. We had certain beliefs in the church circles I was in that if you had a lot of faith, you didn't have financial trouble. So there was a shame that got built up around being in financial trouble because it probably meant your faith or at least your choices weren't very good. Years later, I went to a small church in an area that was in economic decline, the Amphi neighborhood uh, here in Tucson. And I went to a small denominational church at that time, and I saw we didn't know very many of our neighbors. Most of the people drove in because they related to the denomination, or they had a history with the denomination, but we didn't really know people in the community. And there were, there were a lot of poor in the neighborhood for various reasons. I remember a long-haul truck driver and his family, uh, landscapers. There were newly arrived refugees. We had low-cost low apartments filled with folks of all sorts of categories, but there were people who were in those apartments because they were disabled, because the, the refugee agencies worked with them. Um, there were people with poor credit where this is kind of a last, a last stop, a last resort. There's a lot of hopelessness, and then when you have a lot of hopelessness, you begin to see a lot of what? You, you start to see things like drug and alcohol abuse and, and things like that. And the hardest thing for me to deal with and accept because the two schools in the neighborhood would get out, the schools would get out, and all the kids from Amphi High School and Amphi Middle School would walk straight, and bing, there was our church when the, when the two groups walked straight, and they just hung out in our parking lot. And I would watch all these kids who had nowhere to go. They're, they're, they didn't have, if they had families at home, they didn't want to be there. So many kids were just walking around on the streets. And I would think, and I, would, and I got to know some of them, and I got to know their situations, and, and I would just think, what chance do these kids have? Like, what chance do they have of growing up into like a healthy situation when everything in their life is aiming them the wrong direction? Like, what chance do they have? And then when they grow up, they're going to repeat this stuff. Most of them are going to repeat this stuff. What, what do we do? And we taught the Bible at that church. We had a morning and evening service, but we didn't get among the folks very often. We didn't know what they were going through. We didn't know what they were dealing with. We didn't have a lot of relationships through which 
trust could be built. And I, I leaned into that a little bit as a young guy who worked there. I started playing basketball with the kids uh, in the neighborhood, and, and I would help them with their homework if I discovered that. And, and honestly, I got kind of overwhelmed. I didn't know where to go from there. So I, uh, through many interesting events, ended up moving to South Chicago. Um, and I, I went there because I wanted to learn how to do ministry with the poor. I, I related to as my, my history to some degree, though moving into South Chicago was a whole other world because this now was absolute segregation. Um, and I just dropped into the middle of that green, no idea what I was doing. And I wanted to learn urban ministry, but sadly, um, what I experienced, and I was really fortunate to live with a couple that wed all these things together very well. But what I saw in most of the churches was that they had abandoned the anchors of the gospel in their desire to be socially active. Many of the ones that I, that I studied. And they wanted to engage the poor by affirming as much as possible and, and not really shooting for full transformation, like spiritual and physical. And honestly, I think a lot of the folks in these circles, they came to understand like the social workers they worked with more than other Christians because the social workers were in the work with them and, and sacrificing like they were, and other Christians didn't seem to be willing to do that. And on top of that, you add in that a lot of funding for things like that has to come from kind of government organizations, secular organizations, so it's hard to have Christian distinctives when the funding doesn't come in, and if you don't get it from other churches, where else are you going to go? You either just, you know, close up your shop or you don't do it anymore. And these ministries, to me, many of them seem to have lost their souls and their inward spiritual vitality. And I came away from that thinking, that can't be the way. And I saw this couple I lived with and that they brought things together in a way that I thought was really important. So when we planted Midtown, I pressed for commitment to, to two things, to both of these things. We need to be active in our community, social action. We need to be active on behalf of the poor. We need to deal with things like the racial prejudice in our past. We need to deal with issues of justice. We read a lot of stuff. We read some history of American social work back then. We read the book Beyond Charity by John Perkins, and it spurned discussion and shaped our vision but we also, at the same time, pressed into fidelity to the gospel. And we, we decided to align ourselves with the gospel coalition because we saw in them a commitment to the truth of Scripture and its interpretation, as well as a commitment to justice and mercy. And we read the likes of John Piper and Tim Keller and Don Carson. We even went deep into, into some old stuff, you know, Jonathan Edwards and things like that, where we, we dug into some of these practices, and we asked hard questions. And I remember saying something that, you know, to the group, I said, these are not often held in tension, but we have to do this. We have to hold these things in tension, and, and we have to be committed to the gospel and committed to loving our neighbors, even the ones that, to where it's very costly to us, and this is going to be difficult because people from the two traditions are going to struggle with one, with one or the other. If you're from more of the social action perspective, you're going to be a little nervous about the doctrinal stuff. If you're from the like doctrinal fidelity stream, you're going to be a little bit nervous. But we need to be committed. And why was that important? It's because we see it 
all over the scriptures. I'm saying in this brief little moment, we're seeing it in the book of Galatians. Now, I want to show you these three important things. The command to remember the poor, the witness of remembering the poor, and the Christian's pattern for remembering the poor. And I, I need to say, this is going to be an information dump. You're going to have to do more work on this if you want to go really in-depth. And we're not even going to get into like principles and practices of how to do this. We can't. But the command to remember the poor. Basically, what I have to say here is this is a whole Bible concern. We're going to take a brief flyover. This is a whole Bible concern. What's the oldest book in the Bible? Anybody know? Correct, Job. Though Genesis speaks of earlier events, Job is evidently older. It parallels old Canaanite literature. There's no mention of the nation of Israel or anything like that in it. And in Job 31, before there's an Israel, before there's a community of God's people, before the Ten Commandments, we see Job defending his case before God. And he's speaking of things that God clearly made known to people before the commandments were given. He speaks of commitments concerning his own sexuality, interestingly, even dealing with the fact that he's committed to, to struggle against lust. He talks about commitments concerning justice, that he would, would have truth in his measurements. His commitments concerning equality. He says that his employees can raise a case against him because they have the same God that he does. That's a pretty profound, ancient thing to say. It's getting on toward some human rights stuff that we would hold these days. And then he speaks of his commitment to the poor. Job 31, 16. If I've withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless have not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from its shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. And clearly Job in this ancient book is saying, and, and the people who would have told this story in the oral traditions, even before the Bible was written, um, they're saying, God-fearing people are saying that God, they knew God would reckon with those who withheld from the poor, who didn't share their food with them, their clothing, their resources, their fleece, let alone oppress them or raise their hand against the fatherless, as Job said. This is not just an issue that was brought up for the church in God's word, because the church, as we know it, God's people isn't formed yet. This is previous to the formation of the church. And that's an important thing to note. And then it isn't surprising that the law of God that comes later amplifies these truths because to a people who belong to God amidst the nations, um, as Israel was and the new Israel of God or the church is now, you must not only face that God would reckon with you if you mistreated the poor or oppressed the poor or didn't help the poor, but that God's heart is for them because the people of God love God, and are shaped by the heart of God. So in Deuteronomy, the second book of the law, of, of Israel's law, the fifth book of Moses, 
God commands not just a tithe to the temple, but a tithe of all of your grain to be gathered together as a community to take care of the poor. And there are laws to lend freely without interest, Exodus 22, to those in need. Deuteronomy 15 also commands the forgiveness of debts every seven years. Why? To eliminate poverty. It actually says that. So there's no poor among you. And states something that Jesus would later teach to his followers because he knew these texts. And Jesus would use it to say, you're not wasting time worshiping me, but, but still listen to this text in Deuteronomy that Jesus knew. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The theme is in the ancient songbook. It's like Psalm 112, 5 to 9. It is well with the man who's gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause and judgment. He will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. He will be, he will be an honored person. Do you see this direct correlation between righteous living, trusting in the Lord, and caring for the poor? Because it aligns with God's heart. And when God loves and desires that people be cared for, you don't want to sin against those people because God defends the cause of the fatherless. And so he commands his people to do the same, which is like what we read in Amos at the opening portion. I once heard Vodi Bauckham preach on Isaiah 1, and it was a warning to insincere worshipers. And he read this text, and then there's another one that comes after it. I want you to pay special attention to this. But Isaiah 1 says, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings or incense that's an abomination to me. See, those are their temple services that God commanded them to do. But he says, stop. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And these are the religious festival days. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. It's important to ask, what evil did they do? What were they doing that God was so angry that he said, halt your worship services and get this right? Verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So we can infer this is what they didn't do. Therefore, their worship was insincere because these things are always tied together. Our connection to the heart of God and our lives that we live are always connected. Plead the cause, correct oppression, do justice. Don't be hearers of the word, as James would later say, but doers. And of course, Jesus healed people. He gave money to those in need. Judas managed the money that was to be given to the poor, we learned. And James would say, your faith is dead without works. What is it good to say, be warm and well-fed to someone unless you do something? 
And Paul, who's often pitted against James for his emphasis on faith alone, being that which takes hold of God's grace, right, is also eager, Galatians says, to remember the poor. And we see him doing it. In Acts 24, he's taking his gifts to the poor, which was a custom of his. Actually, potentially, that trip he took to Jerusalem to see these pillars of the church was him taking funds to them because they were dealing with famine. We see it in his condemnation of the Corinthian church in which they devoured the Lord's Supper and left none for the hungry. And that's very similar to James in James 2 when he sees a sin of partiality where some people came in and they took the great seats and people walked in dressed nicely and people you know, engaged with them, talked to them, and they didn't spend time talking to the people who were poor because they didn't see any social capital being built with those people. And James said that it should not be so. And James goes on to actually insult those wealthy people, shockingly enough. And he says, it's most likely that those are the people who are going to sue you and take you to court. That's kind of messed up. But he said it. So there you go, flyover view. I'm telling you, we've hardly scratched the surface. It is all the way through from the oldest book to the newest. God cares deeply about the poor and his people should know his heart and therefore care and remember the poor. And that should be enough, right? The Christ-worshiping person, that should be all we really need to know. But I'll add to that that it's a great witness for the church. It's an important witness for the church. Um, For it was Jesus who said, anything you've done for the least of my brothers, you've done it for me. And people should be able to see us doing things for Christ, even though our intent would be that our right hand wouldn't know what our left hand is doing, right? The intent isn't to be seen, but people will, history shows us, see. We know that early Christians were known and that the church grew in large part because they took care of the poor. They grew mostly among the poor. And this is when Christianity wasn't even legally recognized. It was persecuted. Uh, Eusebius and John Chrysostom captured data on the early church and the development of deacons and these teams underneath them. They put massive amounts of resource and work into caring for the poor. And in the ancient world, this was unique. Greek and Roman governments considered health and poverty poverty to be private and personal problems And Christians were the first to make it an institutional priority, meaning they affirmed actual roles within the church just to take care of the poor, and the church flourished. If you scan history, you could almost say that Christianity grew the most when they spent the majority of their time and resources helping those that society didn't want, and that Christianity lost the most in influence and cohesion when it focused on pleasing the wealthy and the powerful. So who does our society not want? That might be a surprising list, actually, for anybody. But that was then, right, during the birth of Western society, and people slid from believing all those things, right? And and that's so things changed. But Christianity, at one point, it's, Christianity has made many comebacks, but one of those is chronicled in a book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, really well. And this is a time when Christianity came back in to Western society and to kind of a hostile, paganized version of it under St. Patrick. And, you know, we, we now remember him with St. Patrick's Day. This, he had very little to do with that, right? 
Patrick was a person who had been enslaved in Ireland and then returned. And he brought the gospel and he brought a a unique strategy and how, you know, the the island or, you know, Ireland is littered with ancient churches. And you have to ask, well, how did that happen back then? What, What happened? And it was because the Christians under Patrick created little counter societies that especially cared for the poor. They put a lot of work into caring for the poor and those that people didn't want. And it was attractive. Interestingly, people were like, how do they have the motivation for that? And it grew and grew and grew. Plus, people who are cast out out of society, when you accept them and help them, guess what? They're all in. They're interested. One of the most surprising American phenomenons is the black church. And some of you, you know, there's a special on PBS right now for Black History Month where you can learn some things about it. But here Christianity grows and thrives shockingly, right? And these were folks with Christian slave masters. You'd you'd expect them to reject Christianity. My friend Vermone says this is evidence for the sovereignty of God right here, that the black church flourished despite having Christian slaveholders. It's, It's shocking. But their Christian communities became more vibrant and active in sustaining one another than many of the the churches of their oppressors that had far more resources. And a few years ago, and I'll never forget this, I asked a a couple of friends on a podcast, one of them an atheist and one a a kind of very unsure person who's been involved in church from time to time. I said, "What, what could the church do to be more compelling to you? And they both unequivocally said, pursue justice for those who are oppressed and who are poor. And so for what that's worth, for what that's worth, I think our witness historically and now has hinged on our commitment to remember the poor. So how do we maintain a commitment like that? How do we maintain a commitment to the gospel and to the poor? Because caring for the poor can be hard. I mean, we have deacons at our church, and and if we think through the years of time that the deacons have worked with folks, and think of so many conversations where it's difficult to stick with it. It really, it's a lot of work. It can be very difficult to really dig in and walk with someone with with a lot of needs. It can be all-consuming. What's our motivation? How, How do we do it? And this is my final point. And it's not even really a point because Jesus, you know, if you wanted to, if I were to say it needs to be Christ patterned, we would need a year long sermon series on the life of Jesus to like get that through. But Jesus once told a story that I think gets at the heart of this. And we're just going to kind of go through that. Luke 15, you know, it as the prodigal son, though it was never called that. Probably the prodigal was the father. But let's read the first two verses really quick. Now the tax collectors, maybe not poor, and sinners, many of which were probably poor, were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, now sinners, right? Many of these sinners had made poor choices. And, it, and if you, you know, if you're like, you look at folks like my family, back when I was in the mobile home park, we made some choices, right? Like, 
I can recount a couple of them. Wrong choices we made probably led to us being in that position. It can be easy to look and say, you've, you've made some poor choices. Those are sins. Categorically, they are, right? They were, we missed the mark. Didn't do it right. And sinful people are there. You know, they made choices. They're, a lack of wealth, right, can contribute to all sorts of sinful paths, lead to sinful habits. It can. You get hopeless. You start to feel like you've, you've blown it. You've messed it all up. What's the point? You work at the strip club once, and you kind of make some decent money, and it makes it easier to do it the next time, because I already blew it last week, and so what difference does it make? At least I can make a lot of money doing it again. I've, I've heard this from friends who ended up there, okay? Selling a little crack for a lot of money becomes pretty alluring. Once you've tried it once, and you realize, like, I've already done that, and that ship has sailed, my purity is gone, and I don't have any other great ideas. I don't know how to do anything else. Nobody ever taught me anything. This somebody taught, there's an older guy that gives me what I need and tells me what to do. And it can kind of get easy to get into that, right? Blowing your whole check on junk food doesn't feel so wrong when you grew up in a house where you rarely get to treat yourself. It doesn't feel so crazy. It feels like, can I at least get a little something? Maybe a couple bottles of Coca-Cola, even if it takes the rest of my food stamps. And so it is with buying Patagonia gear. You don't need to wear while you travel way more than you should because you need to feel better about life. Except that one sounds very normal to me. I respect a lot of people who do that to this day. Right? Jesus is getting at this thing. We understand a lot of sins, Some we feel are very difficult to deal with. Some feel fine. That's what Jesus is getting at, the parable of the prodigal son. Who are the sinners? Who needs the saving? Am I so different from those I look down upon? And if I am not, then how should that shape my heart toward these people? I'll summarize Luke 15 in my own words, see if it lands. There was once a man with two sons. The youngest wanted to leave and live his life. He had big ideas and plans, and he asked his dad for all his future inheritance. So his dad split the inheritance between the two of them, and that younger son blew every dollar on stupid stuff. He bought a van, traveled the country, bought all depreciating assets, got himself into drinking and fine dining, hooked up with some girls on Tinder, slept with them. Soon the money and the reputation is utterly gone. Once the money was gone, he didn't want to tell his dad. And to make matters worse, it was a pandemic, and he couldn't find a good job to get back on his feet, so he took a job cleaning toilets at the dumpiest gas station in town while he lived in his car that he owed $500 a month on. Until he got so desperate, because he couldn't pay the bills and he was about to lose his car, that he decided to face his dad. And he knew his dad would be angry with him and probably want nothing to do with him, but he had no other option. It's beg for mercy or die. So he humbled himself, and he rehearsed his speech. I have failed God, he would say, and you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me live here and clean your toilets, Dad. It's better than being on the streets. And on his way back, before he could even give the speech, he saw his dad running down the road in tears, 
with his arms open and he jumped out of his car and his dad threw his arms around him, wrapped his favorite Patagonia sweater right around him, even though he stunk and looked at him and said, son, I was hoping you'd come home. We're having a party tonight. And his dad bought the most, found the most expensive place he could, catered a four-course meal, invited all the neighbors, hired a DJ, and they danced into the night and gorged themselves on choice steak and fine wine. But one person was having a miserable time, his brother. He had taken his inheritance and followed every single one of Dave Ramsey's steps to financial peace. He was already investing in his retirement, and he was very proud of his progress. Why in the world was his father wasting his limited retirement income on idiot brother after he'd done this to all of us? Dragged our names through the mud. This is prodigal, utterly wasteful. The brother was incensed. So he complained to his dad in the middle of the party, screaming over the DJ's music, why would you do this for him? He dragged your name through the mud. You've heard of his checkered sex life, if you can even call it that. He wasted all of our money, and his dad stopped dancing, looked him dead in the eye, and said, because he's my son. Because he's your brother. I love him. Don't you? You've been here and safe. He was on the verge of death. I am just so happy that he's home. I want him to know how much I love him. There's nothing I wouldn't spend to win back his heart and save him from his pain. And Jesus said, I tell you, God will throw a celestial party every time someone repents and comes back home from their sinful, wasteful life. And the apostle Peter, who knew how much he'd failed once, said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you see what Jesus was saying? He was saying to the Pharisees, you don't know who has the greatest need, do you? You don't understand how hard you are to forgive, do you? You don't see how self-righteous you are, do you? You don't know how much it costs, do you, to save you? Because if you did, you would spare no cost on anybody. Because you, you would realize you are the object of infinite, infinite spending. And infinite, infinite grace. When you think you don't deserve to be poor, you're like the older brother. But when you see the only reason you aren't poor is by the lavish, utterly wasteful grace of God, then you won't resent the poor. And you won't withhold from them. Our pattern is the heart of our God. Seeing the sin in our own hearts, believing that we ourselves need the gospel desperately and that God would waste no expense to bring us home and has wasted no expense. When you see when you see how much God wasted, utterly, prodigally gave to save you, your heart will overflow with generosity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see you 
as the God that wastes all his resources out of love. I pray that we would never consider any giving to anyone to be money poorly spent. I pray that you would give us a heart like yours that runs toward people who are materially poor, who are spiritually poor, and who have failed miserably, and that we would offer just ridiculous amounts of grace. I pray that you would grow the church. I pray that people would then see the gospel. I pray that when they hear of your death on the cross and they see our generosity, that the two would come together to powerfully witness to your heart. I pray that you would do that work in us because of your grace, that you would humble us, but give us love. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to worship in three ways. We're going to sing together. We always have giving. It's in the back or online or by text. We look forward to taking the Lord's Supper again. But for now, we're going to take a moment. We're going to take two minutes as a time of silent confession. Just sit on this idea. How have you wasted your life? We all have, somehow. And how has he wastefully lavished his riches toward you? And then call to mind someone you know who is poor and pray for them. So let's give that two minutes. I'll pray briefly as we start. Father, lead us in this time of prayer. I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that we would love your gospel and that it would drive us to those who need you. Lead us now as we pray.